0: I remember once, I might have been seven or so, and my dad was staring at the Mondrian. You know, the, one of those early ones, the more diaphanous ones. And in my child's mind, I was like, I can draw that. It's just squares. And I remember it is imprinted in my brain. Like You replied to that without even ever moving his gaze from the painting. He says, these are not squares, this is an art piece. And I think this is a very interesting way my dad taught me not to be superficial. And it stuck with me. Now, in my head, as a seven-year-old, I think there was a lot of mystery to what he said. And to me, life is, in many ways, unpacking that mystery. What's that
1: line between squares and art? And it's, it's mysterious. Born and raised in Venice, Italy, Matteo Vianello is a creative and design leader who's led an extraordinary and varied life channeling his curiosity and expressing his rich creative talent, building brands, launching products and designing high-performing teams from design companies to global ad agencies to Silicon Valley startups. In this episode, Matteo discusses his parents' influence on his creativity, his diverse education and how serendipity led him from a focus on math and industrial design to landing a role at the iconic Benetton in-house creative studio Fabrica before heading to the US to work in a stunning array of creative businesses. Matteo explains to me the origins and impact of the iconic and controversial United Colours of Benetton ads. Images will be in the show notes. He reflects on the changing ebbs and flows of creativity in business and the current talent landscape, the curse of competency and the merits of in-house creative studios versus creative consultancies. Matteo also discusses the alternative approaches to creative problem-solving, His perspective of in-person and virtual working, the enduring power of storytelling, solving societal problems, and the focus of Matteo's work with his new design studio, Squero. Matteo also provides the best answer I've ever had to the question about advising someone who's been told their dream is impossible. It's well worth a listen. I think you'll be engaged and entertained by the infectious humour, insights and wisdom of Matteo Vianello. Matteo, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. Excellent. So I'm sitting here in a very hot Austin day in Texas, and you are where? In the wettest April and May on record
0: in the Pacific Northwest, specifically in Portland. Uh, yeah,
1: spring Transform. Spring is not coming. <laughs> Sounds quite pleasant to me, the stifling heat here. So anyway, let's get going. So first of all, a yeah. big shout out to the guests that recommended you, Michael Plitkins, and he had the great things to say about you and have worked with you, I think I believe it, at Nest. Yes. Um, so we're going to get on and talk about your in pretty incredible career an extraordinary journey you've been on across a very diverse range of creative businesses that span everything from, seems to be design, industrial design to advertising to technology and startups. And now you run your own co founder of your own agency, Square. We'll really dive deep into the whole sort of creative field and what drives you and your thoughts on where the industry is going at the moment. But before we do it, we always like to really start to get under the skin of a guest and really understand their yes. upbringing. Now, I think we can probably tell from the accent and the name that you're Italian and you were born yes. in Italy, I believe it was at uh, Venice. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I was born in Venice, Italy, which is a strange place to be born and grow up in. My mom was 19 when she had me. And my dad was only a couple of years older, so they got married <laughs> and they got married because they found out they were pregnant, but it didn't last. And it was stormy for a while. And, you know, the upshot was my nonna, nona Pia, on my mother's side was in her 40s, which is <laughs> what I am now. And then I'm, grow- I'm raising my children at this age. And so I spent a lot of time with her, including living with her for long stretches Um, of time in her 400 square feet attic apartment where we refers to in the family as the pigeon house. And what my mom had then later remarried especially and she had more kids and their hands were full. I spent a lot of time with her. And Venice, you know, is definitely a magical place to grow up in. It's safer than places with cars. So kids Mm -hmm. have more agency to move around. You're free early on. And for me, you know, I was free, even doubly so, because uh, Nona Pia was not strict. She had work and basically I was just in the morning making my own coffee already at seven and going to school, walking by myself, coming back, locking the door. Yeah, yeah, it was,
1: it was fun. Yeah, so we've had a lot of guests that have been brought up in some you know, sort of a fairly non traditional way, but it sounds like it was a very sort of safe and secure and supportive, loving environment, regardless of uh, not in a traditional sort of mother father relationship. How did that sort of shape your worldview early on? Venice, obviously, is a very um, sort of popular tourist destination. You must yeah, have for sure. at the international flavor and the sort of global appeal of Italy. So, what was your mindset like as you were growing up as a child? Did you have any... Well, yeah, in
0: Venice, you're surrounded by art, mm-hmm. right? Both the thousand-year-old cultural heritage, which is a patchwork pillages done over the centuries by the Venetian crusades and, and other endeavors. And, and then there's, you know, the Venice Biennale, for example, mm-hmm. which is... And, and many other museums like Palazzo Grassi and the new museum at the Dogana and so you know I remember going with my dad to an incredible world exhibition in the in 89 or 90 and you know I remember you know also I grew up across the, the gardens of the Biennale so I knew wow. how to get in and out <laughs> it was my playground even when, you know, the rest of the year when the, when no one was there. So I, um, yeah, I was I was immersed in it. The other way that, that I think it influenced me is I'm a first child. So as, as any first child, my parents expected uh, a lot of me, not in the stereotypical way of becoming a doctor or a lawyer or pursuing society or status, but more like in pursuing a life of happiness. So I'm still trying now to live up to that. I don't know if I'm trying, I'm, if I'm succeeding, but yeah, they were young. There was a lot of what would be cool kind of uh, mm-hmm. vibe about them. And we listened to records. My dad always gave me allowances to buy records. And and in fact, it was my dad then that suggested looking into industrial design when I finished. I, w- I wasn't a maths-focused high school. Were your parents
1: in the creative industries
0: no, my dad was an incredible photographer who who was too proud to accept the compromises that you have to make of your passion of business, and so he he used to have with my grandma with her mom one of those souvenir stores on the Rialto Bridge, and so yeah, that and in fact. Yeah, I I remember playing there too, right. but it, it, yeah, he it then give, gave that up to, you know, again, for political reasons, he thought it was a shame to sell plastic gondolas to tourists, although he was making a great living and sold that and went to do like, you know, he became a, a bureaucrat at the Venice Bureau of Records or something. And right. that's what he did. And it's just pride, I guess. But he was incredible, an incredible photographer. And in fact, he did some collaborations with some amazing photographers that passed uh, by the Biennale in, in their youth. Wow. And, uh, and my mom was a nurse. So if she wasn't, but she's
1: very creative in other ways. So how did your, how was your, I mean, aside from being immersed in probably one of the most, in terms of per square mile um, or kilometer, probably one of the most sort of creative and fertile areas on the planet for just art and culture H- how was your curiosity and creativity cultivated was it something that was that your father obviously being an interesting photographer and they saying he encouraged you into design or your grandmother did any of them sort of nurture it or do you think it was just your nature and it was just something that flowed from you
0: yeah i think there's i don't want to oversell venice right like um Going there for the Biennale or going there for a museum is very different than living there. And yes, you're exposed, but there's this, it's a very boring place to to grow up, which in a way you could say it's also fertile ground for creativity to be bored, right? The winters are long and foggy. There's not very much of a nightlife. So it gets it gets uh, under your skin in some
1: ways, and yeah, I'd, I don't know. Do you have early memories of how you, when you first started to express your creativity, whether it be on your own or through school? I I would spend when when my friends
0: had girlfriends, I was still playing Legos. You know, like <laughs> not, I was I was uh, like really into like building and creating. I was creating set designs. With my toys in my head, yeah, yeah. But I think like you had a question about curiosity and creativity, and I think that's w- where where this is coming from. And yeah. i i think about I think about those two as input and outputs of the same process in a way. Yeah. And curiosity is the input, right? And, and you know, it's one of these words you hear a lot, especially now. Mm-hmm. I have kids, so I go on schools to on school, so on school tours. And you hear a lot of like nurturing curiosity and making the child inquisitive. It's great marketing. I fall for it every time. But in my case, curiosity was born out of boredom, like I was Uh saying. And then if you're bored, you look for ways life isn't flat. And I know I sometimes wonder with my kids what happens when to curiosity when you grow up with an iPod, when you're the potential of being entertained. We're going to find that um, over the next 20 years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then creativity, on the other hand, is 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 work. It's the output. It's generative. And that means generating a ton of bad ideas is the best way to be creative. <laughs> and so just like uh, to achieve different, a decent jump shot in basketball, you'll, they'll tell you, yeah, you have to miss a ton of shots. And so it's like this constant dance of staying an amateur messing up and then editing yourself building on that repetition repetition
1: iteration
0: and mastering
1: what you do Mm -hmm. i mean it's interesting i haven't heard someone talk about creativity and curiosity as inputs and outputs i can understand that boredom is the trigger and stimulator of your curiosity but when you were bored at that time, I mean, it's an interesting point you make about iPads. There were no iPads for kids around the from the late eighties, early nineties. There was no technology. m t d was just sort of emerging, and in a sense, you're and I can appreciate that you had access to all the incredible art and culture of Venice. Where did your curiosity take you? Was it in your mind, or was it did you physically go out and explore? Uh, yeah. I remember once I might have been seven or so,
0: and my dad was staring at the Mondrian, you know, the one of those early ones, the more diaphanous ones. And in my child's mind, I was like, I can draw that. It's just squares. And I remember it is imprinted in my brain. Like you replied to that without even ever moving his gaze from the painting. He says these are not squares. This is an art piece, and I think this is a very interesting way my dad taught me not to be superficial, and it stuck with me. Now, in my head, as a seven-year-old, I think there was a lot of mystery to what he said, and to me, life is in many ways unpacking that mystery. What's that line between squares and art, and it's it's mysterious.
1: Hmm. So that that memory is obviously so it lives with you when do you think that sort of inquiry in your own mind into the formation of, you know what is you the or the expression of creativity that had an impact on you as you progressed through school did your were your teachers aware and acknowledging and encouraging yeah so that memory that memory
0: oh, it's a key memory and it's and it's a key driver that and and others of that type but they lay do- dormant mostly throughout my schooling and in fact i i went to my my teachers were nuns up to middle school and, and so the type of the the type of like curriculum was almost from the 1800s it's like almost like mona italian monarchical i was being raised to be i don't know like i i don't know like it, it In in some ways, when I think about that stuff, it feels like I travel
1: through time, you know? So there was no, so art classes didn't cover, so it's art. Yeah, I mean,
0: I remember Nance wanted me to write poems, like, it's like, well, and I'm sure it was, it was a worthy, but you know, it was always like, it was always like a little bit stodgy and stuffy and literally from another era. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up in the 18th century until middle school, and then I had to catch up. (laughs) I had to catch up and figure out, like, for example, I remember going to, to you know, high school and I had to figure out what's this X that people put in equation. I never, I never, I never saw that before. But and that's why, on purpose, I went to a maths-focused high school, and I just wanted um, to challenge myself, like catch up with the time, and I wanted to excel in in school, but only really on the things that interest me. So I had front burners and back burners, and used my calorie on what calories on what I on what I the
1: way I wanted. Yep. So that time, your interest was more in maths, and and. And the sciences than art and creativity.
0: Well, and, and and you know it's very creative. You, you like math is very creative, and it's in a sense it's. Uh... I don't know if you've
1: um, read um, the book. So the, the person that that recommended Michael Plitkins was Walter Warzola, uh who you might know. And anyway, so Walter recommended a book um, that we read called The Creativity Code. I'm in the middle of it at the moment. Okay. Yeah, and yeah. I, more- I want to read it. It's really good, yeah. but it's about how math is—you know—at the core of math there is creativity, incredible,
0: incredibly so. And and music and math, right? And so actually, I first started playing music, and that's where I met Alessio. So Alessio, you know, I was in bands. Alessio is your partner in the business. Yeah, exactly. Alessio's Squirrel co-founder, and I was in many bands growing up, playing guitar. This is actually
1: from the Nuns.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly at that time. And and uh, so, you know, music is this creative engine, especially when in your teenage years. You have album art, you have the music videos, you have things like Ray Gunn. You know, the, there was one store in the whole county where I lived in that sold Ray Gunn and Wired at the Venice train station, possibly catering to the international visitors. And I, and I just cleaned up. You know, I and then and in fact then when when I had an opportunity to go see a David Carson, the, the the creative director of Reagan exhibition in Milan, I jumped at the chance. And that's how I got into the world of design and graphic design. And and then David Carson had after that exhibition was gonna have a workshop for three days at Fabrica. Not your Fabrica, but United Colors of Benetton Fabrica. And for people
1: that don't know about Fabrica, yep. Fabrica was the cre- creative in house agency of Benetton.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I was able to hustle my way into this workshop and I knew that Fabrica existed, but even. What age, Sorry?
1: Were? What age were you when you? Point.
0: I was I, w- I was starting college at that point. I was in my second year of college. And, and by the way, my college was not far from Fabrica. I was in the countryside of Venice. And my college, the building was an annex of the University of Architecture in Venice, which is a beautiful building. But the building where I was in was a super dingy, run-down building. And five minutes from there, there was this amazing... Almost mythical, right? Farmhouse remodeled by Tadao Ando. Wow. And, and the moment I had a whiff that I could get in for this workshop, I really hustled it to get in. Yeah. And it's, it's a in-house agency. It was mostly a, a think tank of creativity for, for Benetton. The brand, the brands of Benetton, like Rollerblade and Killer Loop, it had a lot of sports and lifestyle brands, mm-hmm. acquisition. And and that's where also Colors Magazine was housed for a while. So we also being exposed to those amazing guys there was, <laughs> was an incredible experience.
1: So before, I'm, I'm going to ask you a bit more about that. But before we do, I mean, your, your father was instrumental and guiding you towards sort of industrial or design industrial design was your interest where did that at what point did you sort of start to sort of look beyond industrial design into a different expression of your creative skills yeah my dad
0: suggested industrial design because he had you know he, he had read an article on the newspaper and kept the clipping about Gillette in Canada spending $2 billion of 1919's dollars to develop the new Mac 3. And he was so shocked by... To him, it signaled, and I think it was right, like it signaled that design was becoming a strategic competency, especially mm-hmm. to companies that were competing on commoditized goods, like Razor, blades, right? And so... It kept that. And when I looked into it, it just made a lot of sense for me. It joined kind of the maths and kind of engineering preparation that I had in high school with my artistic aspirations. Mm -hmm. And also Italy as a tradition of industrial design. After the Second World War, there was this big Italian uh, industrial renaissance and we we didn't invent the light bulb but man we could design a bunch of lamps bruno munari is one but think of the castiglioni brothers or even as an international hub of design milan particularly richard sapper and the influence of the german and austrian design is still pretty strong in the north of italy but i think my my moving from industrial design to what i kind of do now which is more like Branding, communication, videos—it's just that with industrial design, it takes a certain mindset. First and foremost, you, you you need patience. I have friends who change job and then they've been at a new job for two years, and finally, the thing that they are working at the job five years ago comes out. Like, <laughs> so that a lack between thinking it and actualize was where I didn't have the temperament for. When you when you play music, it's there. And I can play it by the fire with my guitar, right? Or I can produce a very complicated, beautiful record. But there's an immediacy with it that when I, when I started experimenting with graphic design, it just clicked. It, it was like writing a song in a way. Now, of course you can print it in different ways. It can be a billboard or web page, just like it can be a live concert or a record, but there was just not having to wait. And the feeling is complete in a way. It's it's a shallow reason, I know, but I was in a hurry mm-hmm. when I was in when I was uh, studying industrial design. I was sharing a bedroom with my two younger sisters and my two younger sisters were about to hit puberty. So I wanted to
1: get out <laughs> <get laughs> of
0: there.
1: Um, okay, I can understand you're in a hurry. That makes sense. <laughs> so when, when you were, you got a, hustled your way into Fabrica, how did that? Go from just being inside a workshop to actually being a part of Fabrica. Yeah, the moment I was able to get the spot,
0: just by you know, hey, you know, I'm here. I just I just was at the exhibition and I really hit it off with David Carson and I would love would love you know I studied down the street industrial design. I would really love to to participate and and I got in and it was like a different world. First of all, the first and most obvious difference was outside Fabrica, people spoke Italian, inside Fabrica, people spoke English because everybody who's there came from different places. I still have friends now from those those years that live in Japan, went back to Japan, like from all over the world. And so they, the, the Lingua Franca was English there. And so that was in itself refreshing and almost like a breaking from the provincial little countryside town where where it was located. But then on those three days of the work with the David Carson workshop, I tried to stand out as much as I could to the to the people who were running the different departments within Fabrica, and just. Just exude energy and enthusiasm and and participating and and then it I was so lucky that they offered me to come back mm-hmm. because they were so energized by what I was bringing that they asked me to come back, which usually that's not the process you know the process at the time was submitting a project, submitting a proposal, so they asked me to come back and think of a project that I
1: would do and would like to pursue. And this is why you were still studying.
0: Yeah, so I was living a parallel life. I was doing my college stuff, but trying to get into Fabrica. And then when I, when I got into Fabrica, I kind of abandoned. I said, guys, I'm sorry. I'll do the <laughs> fine, the last exams. But, but the funny thing is, when I got asked to go back to Fabrica, I didn't go by myself. I brought Alessio with me. Hmm. Who, who who, they had never met. And I told them, Alessio and I had this project we wanted to pursue about fashion in the age of, at the time it was called, Supermarket of Style. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we proposed this thing which never went anywhere late, late after we joined, but it was... The way we got in and I was, <laughs> I was able <laughs> to bring a name
1: too. What I'm saying is, yep. So what type of projects did you get involved with at
0: We tried to, to do as many different things as possible and not focus on one area. So we did anything from ad campaigns, for example, ad campaigns for uh, the International War Crime Court in The Hague or awareness campaigns for HIV with MTV Europe, um, all the way to a couple of snowboard collections for one of the Benetton brands and, um, and clothing. And also of course we were right there with, um, with Colors magazine. So we did illustrations for them and I'm actually in one of the covers of Colors magazine.
1: But let's see, you met him through music. You didn't, uh, you weren't studying with him doing industrial design.
0: Yeah. And, and yeah. But, but we, we just hustled our way in to to, to to get in there. And then we had a wonderful time and contributed a ton to to, to their pro- those projects.
1: I mean, we, we always try not to send the serendipity where the serendipity key serendipitous moments of someone's life began. So it sounds like it, it being that exposure and that meeting with David Carson was critical because if Carson hadn't been there, if you hadn't attended that event, you would never have got to the work. There are there are so many moments like this throughout.
0: It's almost like this thing that they tell you, you know, when a door opens, just go check what's behind mm-hmm. it. And there's so many of those, so many of those moments. And I am so grateful that I look behind those doors and I try to sometimes past the door to get in you know within my power you know the power of a 21 year old you only have your your energy your enthusiasm your naivete your ability to
1: work until midnight it's it's interesting because i was starting out in advertising at the beginning of the 90s in edinburgh and an agency called leith and i was looking at that time to the, where the great centres of creativity resided, and it was obviously London, and Soho, and New York. Maybe to a degree, sort of, you'd look to Tokyo, but yet there was this this microcosm, this this small, intense, burning sort of creative hot hot spot in Italy, yeah, in Fabrica. What do yeah. you think? What do you think contributed to making that such a prolifically? Creative and the, I mean, the some of the the work that came out of there, particularly just the seminal, so United Colors of Benetton print and posters and out of home, that just you know rocked the world literally. Yeah, what, what, what was it that? How did they foster that culture, creativity, and make it such prolific studio? The, yeah.
0: Well, the the it all starts with olivero Toscani, who's. Mm-hmm the the photographer whose work you're referring to it was able to take the the budgets and global aspirations of the Benetton clothing brand and channel them through advertising campaigns really tugged and poked at some of the big Cultural assumption that Europeans, Italians in our own way, even more, make mm. about religion, race, gender sex, mm. gender. And it's, it's, it was prescient in a way, because now those same themes are steered in society and are affecting advertising and communication. But what what is happening now is happening more out of rage. There's rage and there's outrage. Yeah, accompanying them. Back then, they were so ingrained that it was almost like uh, making fun of of culture of our morse mm-hmm. and poking fun in giant billboards. So you'd have giant billboards with three hearts. And under each one, there would be a label saying white, black, Asian. Mm -hmm. And of course those were shot were pigs' hearts, but Uh nobody knew. (laughs) And everybody thought that Tuscany got some hearts in the black market. (laughs) Uh And, And it just took... This provocation to generate press storms really? that would generate a ton of free publicity for the brand while at the same time, you know, opening up discussions on TV, on mm-hmm. newspaper
1: about very important topics. So um, I've got questions around that. Yep. You used, you know, very insightfully said today uh, everything is binary. It's, is rage and outrage. Why do you think, I mean, what was a very, prov- there, I don't think there's any advertising at, at, at that time that was as provocative. Maybe the Guardian newspaper tried to provoke, but nothing on the scale of United Colors of Benetton. Why wasn't there the same level of rage and outrage then that there is now? Because you, as you say, there, it, you're still dealing with the same issues of yeah. gender, race, culturally. Because, and, yeah. Because back then, the privileges
0: of the, of the governing class mm-hmm. were not being, were not under any pressure. Yeah. So it was, it was almost like a step between provocation and comedy. Uh uh-huh. Whereas I think today it's more acutely felt because the laughing it off is not an option.
1: Mm-hmm. Because the uh, institutions are under threat. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. You've worked, and I'm, I mean, we could spend a whole podcast talking about your time at Fabrica mm-hmm. and the work you did. But you've worked since then across an array of unbelievably creative businesses in advertising Design to tech businesses. Landor, Gooby Silverstein, amazing agency in San Francisco that many people would be familiar with, all the way through to Google and our Nest, which was acquired by Google. Can you just reflect on, you know, the, the early days and the creativity you saw being developed and, and the work you were doing in the early 90s and how things have changed over the last couple of decades in terms of? Yeah creativity in business and the, the changing role of creativity in business state compared to what it was then.
0: I think of creativity in business, the way Michelangelo was probably thinking of the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican or Leonardo was thinking of his weaponry and weapon system for the sforza's Milan, right? Like creativity in service of and subsidize, subsidized by, uh, corporation is not that different and i think that's the lesson also of toscani right which much like those masters was taking the patronage of benetton and the benetton family to create something interesting that the benetton family would be proud of colors magazine and fabrica and all the work that came out of that the idea of creativity as something pure and untouched by commerce is in a way, very quaint and a carryover from romanticism or a certain way of doing art from a certain class in a certain century. But so in a way, when you zoom out, nothing changed, Mm -hmm. right? We're still doing creative work for institutions and corporations the way even those old Renaissance masters were. But when you zoom in close, however, the role of creativity ebbs and flows with taste Particularly with the generation, varying degrees of conformism and anti, anti conformism. I, I interviewed, I had a conversation with Gillo Darfless, which is an Italian art and design critic. And he wrote this essay, this book about the oscillations of taste. And back when I read it and I interviewed him, I really didn't understand it. But then, you know, 20 years on, when you see it played out as you experience the swings firsthand, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's true. It absolutely, and one example, going back to the iPad example we were talking about earlier, you know, I come from a generation, I think my generation was radically anti-conformist, right? The, the, in the 90s, we were rejecting the 80s, we were rejecting that kind of somehow superficial decade and and i think if if my 20 year old self saw how addicted i am to the phone Mm -hmm. and how conforming the use of phone is to society it's a flattening agent you know i i don't think i would be proud of myself <laughs> if i <laughs> saw <laughs> oh. but this generation they don't know the difference you know and 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 it's energizing in a way you know like the nft kids think that they're reinventing the internet just sure. like we thought we were inventing the internet when well in the 90s when when started becoming... And they're
1: finding a way to own it the way we did. Of well, as well, if you look at the, just the um, pro- prolific nature of creators on TikTok, you know, that it's if they're just buying their own medium for expressing creativity.
0: Yeah. However, they do it on templates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's really interesting. It's just this mass... Is this mass, I don't know, mass produced create, creativity, which, hey, it's, it's so interesting. And, and down to the idea of decentralized and all that, right? Like web 3.0 and crypto, the, this is our concept we, we were talking about in the nineties, decentralizing the power of media. We were, we were thinking about TV and networks and how this was decentralized. And it's so, in a way, I think it's cyclical, right? Mm -hmm. There's going to be. Each generation reinvents has a need to reinvent the word in a way that fits their ethos, you know.
1: So, as a f- co-founder of Square, now that leads us nicely to the you, you must see and be exposed to a lot of young creatives and their books and the work that they're doing in relation to what you've just said, and that every generation. Does find its 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 direction its form. Are you seeing changes in the type of creatives uh, than you might have seen maybe ten years ago, or is their work the work they're producing different in any way? Whether it's through the use of technology, the form factors, templates they're using, you know, yeah, what, yeah. What, what what are you seeing?
0: Well, I think Not the great. first thing a lot of them are coming
1: yeah. out of colleges that are trained to understand that yeah. advertising. Yeah. Well
0: the first thing we, we should say is there was never so much creativity to go by. Right? Like it it just it's just a, a statement of fact. Like if you if you go on Instagram, if you go on like you're the difficulty I had to listen to a new record because it wasn't available, I couldn't find it, it was sold out. Or find a magazine. There's none of that now. So the accessibility of creativity just spurred like this incredible, like renaissance of creativity. Right? Or, so that that's for sure. There's more now than there ever was, and there will probably be more tomorrow than there ever was. Right? Like we're we're living through an acceleration. In a in a sense, you could say what was baseline, what was incredible for us in the in our you know when we were starting out is baseline now but i think the biggest change i see is we minted a lot of designers and creatives relative to when i started this job and so when i look at a book like of course there are no books but when i look yeah. at the portfolio right <laughs> when i look at the portfolio you have to sift more there's a ton of mediocre talent out there there's the same proportion, but much more to sift through. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of mediocre talent, but also the problem is there's even more open roles there, is, there there is talent to go by as companies. Just like my dad pre-science clipped that article, companies are realizing that creativity and design are a strategic competency no matter where, where they operate. Mm-hmm. And these jobs... Particularly in the Bay Area, where I spent the last twenty years of my career, they pay well, so you've got mediocre talent and they're making more than their parents just out of school and 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 so they're entitled and it's actually funny, you know, and so it's very likely a certain kind of old school designer thought pretty much the same about me when I first started <laughs> but but this is the difficulty I have in finding talent, both when I was at companies and hiring. And now, as you know, we're trying to scale up the the
1: square of work. So when you find these, really, this, this other generation, you're sifting through the books and portfolios, looking for the talent. I mean, you find it. How do you go about cultivating and improving their creative thinking, expanding it? encouraging them to foster what let's say in more expansive innovative thinking are there any things you turn to so
0: let me just say that in uh, the types of roles i had in silicon valley i did not have the privilege to or the luxury rather to to hire people so junior and mentor them Mm. like if we did we had a for example a internship program, but if we did it was people that I was managing who were doing that. Yeah. So it's been a while since I was in that position. I I did that at the beginning of my career, but the speed and the growth that startup companies require to just keep up with the business does not allow you to sit down and talk Typography with a junior designer mm-hmm. on over coffee breaks. <laughs> However, a match I love to do it. <laughs> so I think if the question is, as a creative leader, how do I cultivate and and foster this mm. innovation, and how do you not become stale? Yeah, right. I think for me is really pursuing being incompetent that's that's what i do and i got this i I think i was always doing it like naturally Mm -hmm. almost like putting myself in situations where i really didn't know the the answer it's kind of like something that as designers we crave because we crave that Adventure of figuring and uh, figuring out big problems. Mm-hmm. It's really satisfying. And so, but it wasn't until I read this, you know, Minjin, Minjin Lee, the, the American, you know, now on Apple, there's the Pachinko. There's a TV series called Pachinko. Yeah. She wrote the book Pachinko, but there was an interview of Minjin Lee and she was originally a lawyer and were it not for a medical condition, she would have uh, never become a novelist and she called that in an interview the curse of competency that she wouldn't be a very successful lawyer now but you know in in the Silicon Valley jargon they're called golden handcuffs right where you stay at the job you're miserable in because you're resting investing and getting all this money and this idea of the curse of competency became an axiom for me right away like when you when you can earn a lot of money doing X, it's really hard to cannibalize your own income by starting to do something totally different, right? And it's the same lesson for example, of the iPhone displacing the iPod, right. If you don't do it, you go the way of Kodak that had the digital camera first but never wanted to cannibalize their film business, right? And so it's the same with staying innovative and creative. You have to cannibalize your own competency. And becoming competent at something again. And when you do you do that, you kind of renew your competence to begin with, right? Like, So it's not anyone's first instinct to do,
1: especially when you have a family. You know? It is interesting that you mention it because you're right. If you think about Clayton Christensen in this great book, The Innovator's Dilemma, you talk about having dis- you know, creative disruption. You mentioned that Apple had to do it because if they didn't, someone else would have come along and disrupted them funny i haven't really thought about it in that level of detail from on an individual sort of personal brand standpoint that we all must it, you know it's an argument for lifelong learning never to, rem- and to yeah. always remain curious and to remain willing to explore new paths forward and ne- never settle it is so because i don't think a lot of people necessarily i know that increasingly we're we've seen particularly in news people leaving great Traditional agencies go in-house at places like Apple and, you know, I've got a friend that went from DDB to Apple to Verizon. And also it's happening at Facebook and Google with Google uh, X and whatever. And, you know, they produce some great work. But how, you talk about the pace at which you have to work on a tech company, particularly in a tech startup. I, I, just generally looking at it, now that you are a founder of your own agency, how do you would you describe the differences between and the merits of an in-house versus a, more of a traditional agency setup?
0: Well, uh, first, I would say it's really great that those big companies are hiring creatives and mm-hmm. designers, and they're building big design teams of enormous talent. They're weaponizing their money to... To get the best talent in house, I think it's it's great because if they model that, other companies who would never think to build incredible design teams might might, might start thinking about that. And we've again, it's a very positive development. I think the world needs more design thinking mm-hmm. in, in general. The world can be so much better if you start thinking as a designer. So. That's for sure. But in terms of your question about the difference between in-house operations and consultancies, I would say when you're running an in-house agency, like I did for the biggest part of my career, I think your, your team has an in- intimate knowledge of the product or services you, you, you are selling. So that's incredibly valuable mm-hmm. because the team knows what you do, what resonates Even down to what you can legally say and not, what the key claims are, what are the big areas, your messages to stay away from that are problematic or that you know are misinterpreted, etc. So the reason why you tap on vendors when you are like the like the agency or studio that I've created when you are in-house is for one of two things. Capacity or skill. Capacity when you don't have enough. Work hours, accomplish a goal, skill, when you're doing something you've never done before, like it's your first event or a first trade show, first time, first time doing an integrated ad campaign. And you've been doing, or, or for example, when your team has done that same, that the same thing so many times Mm. that, that they're out of ideas, you know? And I seen that when I was working at Blue Shield it was so cyclical every, every August we would get the brief for the open enrollment campaign and it was like, Oh God, not again. So that's, that's a very silly example of something that happens quite often, you know, like there's only so many angles to tell us the story of a thermostat or a smoke alarm, like I did at Nest. So you, you do want that fresh perspective from somebody from the outside to, Blend and mix with your internal team and the knowledge you have of the product. When, uh, conversely, I guess when you're when you're running a consultancy or agency, your power begins and ends with the clients you choose to work with. And in our case at Squaro, we're not looking to help Nike sell more shoes or Frito sell more chips. where we want to bring those strategies and practices that we've learned in our careers to you know working at startups to help the new. Kind of crop of startups. And, but we are focused on startups that are doing good in the world. Like we want to help accelerate the adoption of, of good tech. So okay.
1: mostly focus on like those type of companies. I mean, it, it's interesting that you, you mentioned that because there's losses, you know, if we think about back to the early knots when the book, the lean startup came out and organizations should operate and you know increasingly you hear today more conventional sized businesses and even marketing companies talking about becoming agile an agency saying yeah we're going to become more agile but in reality the expression of that and the meaning of it can be is more used for pr fluff and communications benefit rather than genuine sort of change so when you you created a As you say, you've created this business square to help those next generation of startups to benefit from the lessons you've learned from working with the likes of the nests. Do you think agencies, the more traditional agencies, can evolve and change to think and behave and, and deliver the type of work you're doing without having gone through what you've gone through? Do you think they can reinvent and become more digitally savvy and more agile?
0: What is a traditional agency? I don't keep track of that. There's there's a very beautiful way in which agencies evolve with the services that the market wants, right, in a way. So I, I think the adoption of agile methodology of, or like, for example, the the big era of design sprints, right? Mm-hmm. I think those things resonate because they sound like quick fixes to systemic problems of big corporation. Big corporation, they're not agile. It takes forever to steer a big corporation. Mm -hmm. And big corporation, in many cases, do not have big design budgets. So Sprint sounds quick and cheap. Mm -hmm. So they're adopted. In terms of how a company like mine uses agile methodology... I, I, I had to look up what that was when, mm-hmm. when you asked me that question. <laughs> and in essence, it's breaking up a big task into smaller phase one. And, and I didn't know, but that's how we operate in, in at Squarell. And I give you a perfect example. The client comes in, they want to launch in nine months. They give us incomplete information. Our first instinct was, Great. We don't do a nine months engagement, but we 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 said let's do this engagement with these deliverables, the stuff that we have enough information to just kick off and get running. And 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 let's do part of this first two months deliverables, also figuring out what the next deliverables a statement of work would be. And that's why, we, how we operate. We never say, as maybe some, some big other agency would, we're like, okay, well, now we're the agency of record and we need this retainer and we, we want at least one year of work and da, da, da. We, we don't do, we don't see dollar signs. We see, let's start from what we know to do and see where it goes. Mm-hmm. And and hopefully one day some of these companies become big companies and they still want to work with us. But we we're not here to 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 extract wealth from startups. We're here to partner with startups and and, and go, you know go fast at the
1: pace that they grow. Going back to Fabrica and and ben, ben, all times, and you talk about the provoking and the sort of almost like um, tapping into sort of cultural mores and, and the trends happening at the time. When you're dealing with the coming up with solutions for these companies, are you still drawn to the same sort of way of thinking of looking to culture and see how you can tap into cultural insights to solve their problems? Or are you drawn more to how can you apply tape? You know, we talk about how uh, creativity has become driven much more by technology and data. How has it changed for you today in terms of the type of creative solution and how you approach your problem solving through creativity? That,
0: that's, that's a very interesting question where I think the type of advertising that Benetton used to do mm-hmm. That approach to advertising as an opportunity for breaking ice, bigger social conversations that we should all talk about, is a very smart way of using advertising dollar when that company operates in a commoditized market. Yeah, mm-hmm. essentially, Benetton's sweater were no different than other sweaters, but. The reason why you get the Benetton sweater was because Benetton stood for some values and had, and had meaning as a brand. So you wanted to infuse that meaning into the brand and keep it relevant and compelling relative mm-hmm. to very similar product. It's hard to do that when you are trying to explain why your thermostat matters, <laughs> so so you have to spend the calories unpacking the technology and kind of almost shake away your shake awake your target audience from the complacency that they have with their ugly
1: base thermostat yeah i can see so, mm-hmm. i can, i can see that that's a, a very good comparison of thinking through commoditized buyer through innovative technology the needs explained where products and features are distinctive and differentiated. Where I think where it's interesting is if you think about where the, I'm not really just saying this for, to, to provoke the, the discussion. If you look at the fast moving, the rapid changes happening in the automotive market, they're driven by Tesla. And if everything's moving towards electric vehicles, essentially there's a democratization of the technology. The car can accelerate it. 4.5 seconds 60 miles an hour the next one is 4.3 and yeah they might have be badged same, but they're all electric vehicles at the end of the day and it's coming come down to commoditization and for branding matters are we going to see because you think that's a technology it, you could say needs explanation and to understand what between internal combustion engine versus an electric vehicle needs the same explanation as your thermostat but at the category level it's commoditization
0: I, do, I told i i totally get it and that's why i think it, it's the stuff that tesla does is the best right mm-hmm. now like who else can shoot a car into space mm-hmm. i mean like it, you. it's exactly why they do that right mm-hmm. it's it means so much more than talking about you know speeds and feeds of of the car and i I don't disagree with you I think they they are they're playing but like the the Tesla is a very interesting example to to use because they're both a commodity, but secretly they're a tech company yeah or like they're a data company they're you know so they don't advertise right but no. then they shoot they shoot the car into space, which is probably more than. Any of their competitors watch <laughs> 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 that they, they spend in advertising So yeah they're they're using non-traditional methods to 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 stick to
1: the consumer's mind are there any other I mean you talk like you' given a good example sort of changes that are occurred and, and where consistency remains are there any other big changes or dynamics changes to the dynamics the way the industry works from
0: I think the biggest change that I've noticed in my career is, for example, Nest was built through big leaps the way, for example, Apple, you know, is built. Like when you launch the iPhone, you have to launch a perfect thing. Now it's incomplete, and the solutions that follow are going to be more and more complete. The first iPhone didn't launch with the App Store. There was iTunes, but not the App Store, for example. Mm-hmm. But you have to launch something that works in order to win over your early adopters, right? And Nest was built that way. We went from zero to a multi-billion dollar acquisition in three years. Mm -hmm. When you operate that way, you know, you, you don't build a hardware business that fast, divining answers from data. You have to launch something complete and it's all like, let's make this big leap. And then verify, then big leap and verify. So we would look at how consumers were talking, how consumers were using. We would do quick studies in, you know, that we had, we had, we were, we were, we ourselves were testers of the early prototypes of the, of the product. So we, we would use our experience and our family's experience using the product to understand how to perfect it. But after that experience, both Alessio and I deliberately left Nest and Google and the hardware world and went to work for data-driven software uh, companies. I worked at Thumbtack and Alessio worked at Asana. And I guess the lesson there is you can build enormous growth in a methodic way, which is sort of like compounding incrementalism, right? You use data for experimentation. You know, software is very easy to update. It's unlike a, a thermostat. You can update your software product constantly. You can actually run small experiments all the time mm-hmm. and and have tests of usability and, and growth constantly. And you sniff the opportunity, you see a vector of growth. And then you slowly move the whole company in that direction. You can build companies like that. So our approach at Square is we respect and understand both approaches. We res- we understand the big leap methodology of a hardware company like Nest. We understand the data driven incrementalism approach of an Amazon or a Thumbtack, and we know how to work with either.
1: Mm, that's really interesting. I am conscious of time. <clears throat> I do want to talk about. Space and space workspaces because we've all gone through this, you know, last two years of being working virtually. And, you know, I've had lots of conversations with friends, either working in marketing or in creative departments and agencies about the, the merits of being in person. What are your views in terms of where we need to go and where we're going to maybe find, will we find a new balance between virtual and in person working? And does the Does creativity and your creative output benefit from being in person?
0: Yeah. Well, in regards to that, I think before even looking it at from my perspective as a creative, I think as a as a citizen, as a person, I would say I welcome the change that people can work from home, even just for the benefits to the environment. I spent seven years commuting the the distance between san francisco and silicon valley and with me thousands tens of thousands of others and and then when we couldn't anymore nothing changed and in fact productivity in some ways got better improved so just as a as a person i would say this this event of the pandemic was terrible and tragic but the there's some silver linings and one of of, of of those are, yeah. Service the service industry, like the people who work at desks, can put their desks at home. <laughs> you know, like I I don't know. How to say. Now of course there's benefits to being in person, but there's also a lot of bullshit being in person. The the screen provides a distance that. Uh, muffles a little bit of the sensitivities that in-person interaction have and the distractions that in-person interaction sometimes have. Mm -hmm. So I'm all for like, hey, let's have a big presentation. Let's have a big brainstorm. Let's have a big alignment meeting in person. Those big milestone moments, bonding as a team, things that matter to to, to increase your each other's understanding and making sure that everybody is has the same goal. Absolutely, let's do it. But the day-to-day is so much more efficient mm-hmm. when, when you can, yeah, it's the home office to me is a much better place to focus. I think that's my personality too, maybe. I don't know. But I see, you see even Apple and those companies now, I'm having a hard time convincing people to come back to the office. Yeah. Because the benefits way outweigh the the, the problems of distance. Mm-hmm. The tools we have now, they're so amazing. We did, you know, like, so I'm a big fan.
1: If, Where do you think the next 10 years is going to take us? In terms of, we've got, obviously, we're seeing huge changes. You mentioned just young creators and the, how people think about NFTs and yeah. seeing the emergence of the metaverse, you know, obviously being pushed for the benefits of organisations like Facebook behind it, but you know, just there are clearly great advances happening in AR and VR. Yet at the same time, if I if I look at something like the One Show and Can that's coming up, still some of the best ideas are ideas that really tap into the power of video and television or let's say film. I just wanted to get your perspective on where you think things are going and. You know, you've got one hand. You've got these this acceleration of these technologies. Yet at the same time, yeah. are the underpinnings of all, let's say, changing people's desires, is driven by insights, empathy, emotive storytelling. Yeah. So, so
0: my hope is in ten years, we instead of investing in building the metaverse, we invest in solving real problems like climate taking strong action in climate, pass sensible gun legislation, figure out reproductive rights once and for all.
1: Any of these areas is where Squaro wants to operate. It, it is interesting you say that because I, I was looking at just some of the one show films that, and it, you know, agencies have been jumping on the purpose bandwagon for a while and saying, yeah, we're here. But a lot of these, these ideas that purport to dealing with solving system brands that say that they're solving societal problems whether it be climate whether it be gender inequities or social inequities you know they're they're campaign driven they're they're short term they're more done for publicity than real systemic
0: change i i i I totally agree with you so i am not saying that i hope that companies start using climate and issues to advertise themselves. I'm actually right. saying my hope is that we actually as society as a take strong creative... action. Yeah, yeah. No, as a, no, I'm saying think about it. Did, did, your phone opens by looking at your face, yet we haven't figured out climate change. I mean, like, the amount of talent that society is investing in the margin mm-hmm. versus the actual real life-threatening Civilization threatening problems is insane. I mean, at, as much as I love the energy of the metaverse, it's not the real problem. So I guess my answer first is a human answer outside of the industry we work. You know, mm-hmm. like I, within the, ind- within the, the confines of our practice and our discipline of creative and advertising, I don't, I think the, the, you just, just quite literally, just follow the eyeballs, right? Mm-hmm. Like if people are going to be in the, and actually in the metaverse with goggles and stuff, they'll actually follow your eyeballs. <laughs> so they know exactly what you're looking at. It's not just clicks and it's not just yeah. billboards. So yeah, I mean, like all, all it is now is engineering enough values for user to let the companies do that. The, and the metaverse is exciting, especially if you're young. And and there's this sense of possibility and decentralization and not having it owned by a big company. But I don't think that I think what you're get, driving at the the heart of what we do is storytelling, and storytelling it will never change. Like it's kind of like an ingrained need, and so storytelling, like water, will flow downward, whatever media and medium will invent and to deliver it. Mm-hmm. What do you want your legacy to be? I think for me, it's more about my kids. I don't have big aspirations of... For me, it's going to be the memories I make with my kids, mm-hmm. how they'll, they'll remember me, and
1: the drawing and art that I leave behind for them. Mm-hmm. Do you ever wonder that there's a moment with your, when you're with your kids that you say something, that is equal to the moment your dad said to you
0: about. all the time, all the time. But because there's it, no way, that, that, all the time. But there's no way to. For my dad was probably saying that without even realizing how much it would inform. Yeah, N- it's all the
1: time. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no way to know. Yeah, it would be interesting though, wouldn't it? Data can not tell us that only time. Yeah. I mean, um, Okay, quick fire questions. What principles do you stand by? Avoiding mediocrity. What are the hard choices that you've had to make that may have been tough at the time, but looking back in retrospect went right decision? So so this is interesting.
0: Every time I in my career, at every fork on the road, I chose the less lucrative job. So you would think that at this point I would be physically on the street, but it always paid off in one way or another. So... I, I think like the lesson there is like follow, even if it's it sometimes can, can seem counterintuitive, follow your instincts or your heart. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. That's very interesting. And people say totally. Follow. I
0: like, I, this sounds, this sounds, you know, but when I first moved um, to the US, I had an offer from two different branding offices and I chose the one that paid less. But. The other one, then, with the burst of the tech bubble, closed. So it was the right choice, and then that got me to get a green card. And then, like, it just—it's just just interesting how sometimes when you zag, it's the best thing to do, even if it's not the most obvious or what your
1: parent would say. Oh yeah, to take the take more money. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, talked a bit about. The distractions of technology, but where do you go to discover new ideas? I, I would say that I I just read
0: voraciously, books, articles, the new, new, the news.
1: I I just try to read as much as I can. Okay, you've it's funny when you talked about the 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 change of the next ten years and we have to solve societal problems. There's a guy signed to about two years ago, and he wrote a book called New Power. And um, in it, he talked about how Ted uses a line, ideas worth sharing. But he said, really, we need, to, in today's world, we should be focused on the problems worth solving.
0: I, I, I second that for sure, totally. I think that's exactly what I meant with the word needs more design. There's design is an approach to solving problems that maybe we didn't even realize we have yet. And so the bigger the problem, I, I really stand by
1: that. So then if we look at the enormity of problems that lie in front of us, what is the one problem worth solving?
0: I think there's only one real problem, which is climate change. And mm-hmm. everything else is either derived from it, like from our addiction to to oil, for example, like Ukraine, mm-hmm. or
1: like a fake problem, like the metaverse. Yeah. Um dinner party and you could invite four people from history or from today to help you build a better future for your kids, who would they be?
0: That's, you know, that's that's kind of a subscribe to the idea that the society that needs heroes is in trouble. I I don't think there's any four people. I think it's a matter of will. And if there are four people that can coalesce the will of society to solve these big problems that we're facing let's bring them back. But I don't know who those would be.
1: I okay. think it's, it's us. Okay. It's a good answer. You don't sound so sure. <laughs> no, no. I, I, it's a question sometimes a skit because some people don't like it. And they, they just, say it's a distraction and it's not, uh, it just has no substance because it's meaningless. Well, yeah. imagine
0: you bring back you, well, you imagine you bring back like Benjamin Franklin,
1: mm-hmm.
0: great leader, what, what, how long would it take to, would, would it take to him for him to understand what's going on now? It's so complex relative to his reality, right? Yeah. I mean, there's statistics that in one day now we absorb more information than a person in, a, in the 50s absorbed in the whole year. Mm-hmm. We need our own leadership.
1: Well, there is, it's interesting. I was reading about a company okay. founded in London in. In, in South London out of a garage that are building a carbon extraction technology that looks really promising. And these young guys may be the ones from this generation that will help us solve the carbon problem. Advice to someone that's um, just about to graduate, go study, but has been told uh, that their dream ambition is impossible.
0: So I thought about this. So my answer is
1: matrix it
0: all out, right? In the classic way, like fail and succeed. On one axis and possible, impossible on the other. And then let's find some labels for each quadrant, right? Mm-hmm. Which one would you want to pursue? So you can either fail at something possible. So you're another failure. And mm-hmm. it happens all the time, by the way. It's called layoffs. Mm-hmm. And by the way, they're starting to happen in Silicon Valley oh, yeah. right now. So every yeah. day, it's like every day someone dies choking on a slice of ham, Like mm-hmm. doing the most obvious thing right then there's the next quadrant is boring success right yeah success is something eminently possible it's great especially if you don't have regrets the regrets later you learn to make yourself a sandwich and you stick to it for the rest of your life Mm -hmm. you just pray no one comes later with something tastier and make you reevaluate (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> your culinary habits <laughs> the, and your whole regiment, right? Mm-hmm. Then there's interesting failure in mm-hmm. the next quadrant, right? Like you yeah. fail at something impossible. Mm-hmm. No one's going to hold it against you. And by the way, if you didn't try it, no one knew that that uh, mushroom wasn't edible. It didn't look great with those those <laughs> white dots, and uh, but <laughs> now we know for sure. And then the last quadrant where you succeed at impossible is like a legendary success uh-huh. we remember all those people who yeah. did those things and who was the first person to boil an artichoke i don't know <laughs> but it's a legend that thing doesn't look edible at all <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's a great example that's a that's a wonderful answer cool thank you i okay. i thought about that one i love it it's, it's really nice it's the best expression of that answered that question we've had oh we had a question which is is there a question someone that no one asked you that you wish they would ask me how I find my balance yeah okay I won't ask you it because I ask it because for the next podcaster that interviews you that's the question they have to ask you oh okay okay so, so you don't want me to answer that no because it's I do it to, see, to really for your benefit so if someone else interviews you you know they've done the research by listening to this interview Oh, okay. And if they don't ask you that question, they haven't done their job. Oh, okay. Okay. Squirrel karaoke night. What's your song?
0: Oh, I Don't Want to Grow Up. Why? Well, it's originally by the Ramones, but there's many renditions. Uh, right. Okay, nice. Recent TV series or movie you think someone should see that they might not have? Well, I, I mentioned Pachinko, so I'm going to stick to that. I need to watch Apple. it. Yeah, okay. yeah. It's. I mean, it's, sapier. the tv series is sappier than the book but it's cool in other ways okay talking books
1: you talk about your voracious um appetite to consume information and books is there um, a book you think we should offer our listeners make good comments absolutely and that's build the book just i just it. finished yeah i just I
0: it just really launched helped. yeah tony fidel book i i helped with it both the cover the graphics the design and and i think it's a very good book in terms of like why i love tony it's always been about talking about avoiding mediocrity this is a guy who's had a string of successes and um, people
1: don't know who he is Do you want to yeah. explain
0: well tony Fidel is the he was the SVP at at apple he led you know the ipod division from inception to I don't know, 20 generations in. Mm-hmm. He was the SVP of the iPhone until like four or five generations in. And then he left Apple to found Nest, where we worked together. And, and then we got acquired by Google. And um, i give you a little preview without spoiling it, but I have to thank both Tony and Dina. Uh, Dina is my copywriting partner who wrote the book. See, okay. You know, I want to thank them for all the readers because I went into the book thinking that there was only one type of asshole, and uh, in the book, there's a chapter dedicated of all the different types of assholes that there are, <laughs> and I had no idea there were four. And and it's been it's been very educational.
1: Very fine. Reading in the form of the book, I've already recommended it to a few people that it's uh, cool. Yeah, it's I love of, it. It's full of wit and wisdom. Um. Yeah. One question I got because you work with him, but he describes himself as a, as a leader in a, in meetings that he's noisy. Is he noisy? Oh, uh, yeah. Absolutely. It's,
0: it's, it's an accurate <laughs> uh, statement. At some point uh, uh, we, we, we had our, our conferences, conference rooms at Nest were glass. So there were no walls. So they were impossible to, to insulate for sound. So we, we'd look at some point at, creating some like noise cancellation machine in the conference room for his conference room. <laughs> exactly. <specifically. laughs> <laughs> but I love it. I, I personally respond to passion. So anybody who has energy for what they believe in is, is a
1: great person to work with in my book. It is interesting. It's designed to heard him interviewed a few years ago and was amazed at just the energy and the, the spirit Exuded from it, and you suddenly realize that when you hear that, when you re- listen to that book or read the book, you suddenly realize, going back to your matrix of the success, the, the the impossible, and success and the impossible, the you know legendary legendary success as a result. You can see why when the 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 alchemy of Steve Jobs, Fidel, and Johnny Ive, you think it, it had to succeed. <laughs> you couldn't see something failing.
0: Yeah, and and that chemistry also a ton of work. Mm. Like it doesn't come easy; it's a ton of yeah. work. So I would say like there's almost a athlete-like commitment that those guys have to
1: accomplishing things. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Okay, and final question: Who should we interview next?
0: So I. I would suggest Susana Rodriguez, who's the VP of creative at the innovation lab at IBM. But I have other suggestions.
1: if She doesn't respond. <laughs> well, what do we see? if Let's what, see if Suzanne responds first. Susana. Yeah, Susana. Do that. Susana. Okay. Wonderful. Awesome. Okay. Well, Matteo, I really appreciate the time. And just. Uh,
0: I, I have to say, I, I have never done interviews because there's this one liner from Karl Krauss that says a poet that reads is uh a lot like a cook that eats. And <laughs> and to me <laughs> designers who are not designing, you know, the the work should speak for itself. But when I li- when I heard your conversation with Michael, yeah, it felt like I was listening in, you know, with some friends and I think you do a great job. And so thank you for having me. I'm really proud to be your guest.
1: No, no, I, I really appreciate it. And I thank you for your, your honesty and your good humor and your great insights and to tap into your wealth of experience. And hopefully people listen to it will be inspired mm-hmm. and go off and uh, learn and buy what they've learned and benefit from it. So thanks. thanks I'm really cold to seeing the impact that you and well, I'll see you in square of a house going forward. Thanks. Okay. Well, thank you again, Likewise. Ciao. Bye. Okay, that's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please either follow, download, or subscribe on your preferred podcast player. We'd also appreciate a rating and a review as it helps more people find us. And if you have a guest you think we should interview, just email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com or message us on Instagram at theimpossiblenetwork. This is a Fabrica Collective production. So have a great week and we'll be back next time with another inspiring guest on the Impossible Network.